Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. The hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You gotta just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're gonna make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new, real-life stories of hope and triumph, told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... My name's David, and I got sober... 515 of 05. I grew up an, a normal kid with a good family, good mom and dad, two sisters, pretty normal upbringing in New York. We did move around a lot, and from kindergarten through seventh grade, I was in a different school each year. But I did well in school and uh, had a good family. I was often the new kid in each school I went to. So I learned to be, uh, I learned that I wasn't in the clique of the kids who'd grown up and their families and their families' families grew up there. So I I learned that I was kind of an outsider every place I went to and a little less than everyone else uh, due to the fact that I was the new kid. I learned defense mechanisms like humor. Uh, I also learned to fight pretty good. And, uh, you know, normal coping mechanisms of a, of a kid in New York. Um, it was around 15 years old that somehow I acquired a keg. It was a, it was a big, uh, I guess, an aluminum keg of beer. And I was in my garage, and I didn't have a tap. But I remember taking a screwdriver and squeezing it in there and shooting the beer into a pitcher in my garage. I then drank the beer, and I remember it tasted good. And then I remember some of the kids from the neighborhood walked by my house, and I called them over to my garage, and I offered them the beer. And they, you know, we were 15, so beer, we were kind of like not allowed to drink it. But I was able to drink it. I was able to drink it better than them. And for the first time in my life, instead of being a little less than everybody else, instead of being the new kid, I was in. Um, I arrived, um, you know, maybe I, you know, I started becoming a badass that I'd always dreamed of being. So, uh, I guess my whole life I'd always been searching for some answer and, uh, and I found it in beer. I then, uh, I learned when my parents went away, I could have parties and I'd have parties at my house and, uh, I became good at making drinks and I would mix, I'd call skull punch some Kool-Aid and some vodka, maybe some grain alcohol, some dry ice. And kids would all come to my house and we would drink. And now, I was really a cool kid. I was able to talk to girls. I wasn't the new kid. I was I was the man. So, uh, really the answer I'd always been looking for, I found in alcohol. I, uh, 
was supposed to get good grades in high school, and, and I pretty much did. Uh, I was supposed to go to college, so I went to college. And when I went to college, uh, I kind of shifted gears. Now, uh, I start experimenting with uh, drugs. Uh, and I found when I had the Ziploc bag of drugs, it was even cooler than being the guy with the, with the alcohol. So, again, the answer to all my societal leveling issues was drugs and alcohol. It was in college where it started to happen where I would wake up sometimes from a blackout and I'd notice my sweet mates, my roommate, my girlfriend would be pissed at me. And uh, I figured, fuck them. And uh, I had fun. They should just get over it. Uh, as I look back, I didn't realize that I started doing things that I normally wouldn't do when I was under the effect of drugs and alcohol, but uh, it just became the new normal. Also, as I think back, some of my friends from high school, because I hung out with the rich kids and the brains until I started drinking. And then all of a sudden, some of my friends, particularly the really good ones, they stopped hanging out with me. So... I started going on a path that I was unaware of. I just thought I'm Dave living my life, not realizing that I was going down a path where some of the good people who normally I would hang out with gravitated away from me and my peer group started to change. I, uh, I then, you know, I, I was brought up in uh, the 70s and 80s in, in America, so I knew the answer that we're all seeking was to get money. So uh, I started. Uh, I started selling some of uh, some of the the stuff in those Ziploc bags, and I, I learned. Uh, I paid for college, so I got my suit through college, and and you know became the man. I ended up leveraging. I became the legislature president, and I remember there was like a good girl, there was a good boy, and then me with my long hair in between, and I ran on the platform that I was going to take all of Polity's money. And I was going to use it to buy beer. Uh, my state university, I think we had a 17 or an 18 keg limit. And I took all the legislative money for students and I spent it on beer and was wildly popular in college because of that. When I graduated college, I, I got a job. And uh, when I started working, I made a conscious decision that I can't use drugs anymore because... A college kid getting caught with a bag of dope was one thing, but a guy in a suit in Manhattan who was using drugs, that was a whole different thing. So I, I began to, to lean towards alcohol because I was socially accepted, but I still, I still like to seek oblivion when I drink. Not every time. I talk to some people who are like, you know, every time I drink, I black out. And I wasn't that way at all. I've been to plenty of religious events where I'd have a glass of champagne or social events with certain family members where I'd have a little wine. But all that was pretty much just waiting, looking at my watch, waiting for my window when I could drink the way I want to drink. And uh, I got a good job, um, ended up moving out to Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, my, my problems started to get worse. I, I developed a, a work problem. 
because my job was demanding and it was harder to do my job when I was hungover. Uh, I, then I developed a wife problem because uh, I married a really good lady who doesn't drink. Um, she was a she was just a really good person. Uh, some guy dared me to ask her out because she was way above me. A good lady from Newport Beach, and uh, and I ended up starting dating her, and I married her. And uh, she didn't like the way I drank, but she also had some preconceived notions about being married. And she just kind of put my drinking in a box and she would try to manage me like, so just drink on Friday, even though that I would drink up until sunrise Saturday morning. And then she would try to nag my friends away so I could do honeydews on Sunday and then go back to work. So, uh wife problem and this work problem started getting in the way of, of this drinking that I like to do. And then I had a son. She gave birth to a beautiful boy and, uh, and he, he was perfect. Um, as I look back, I would always tell myself that my drinking, even my drug use, it only hurt me. But as I look back, I see that it hurt my family members, my coworkers, everyone around me felt the wrath of my drinking, even though I didn't realize it at the time. I, I had a beautiful moment where uh, it was on my, my birthday and I was, I was driving home from work and, uh, and I was telling myself I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to drink. I think I hadn't drank in a, in a few days, but I walked, I parked my car in the garage and I walked in and I saw my, my wife who pretty much hated me now because a lot of times I didn't come home and I told her I would, but I didn't. I was, I was a liar. I was unreliable. I was really, I was on a downward spiral and not proving to be a good partner or a good provider for our family. And, uh, and I looked at her and she was dressed in a pencil skirt and some high heels and she's beautiful and she was going to make love to me. And I like sex. Um, and the fact that she was going to make love to me, you'd think would make most people interested. Uh, but I told myself that she was a bitch and that screw her. I'm going to go in the garage and drink my 30 pack because it's my birthday. Now, my little boy, he was three at the time and he looked at me and, uh, he had baked a cake with his mom and all he wanted to do was sing happy birthday to his dad who he idolized. And I looked at him and I looked at my watch and I just thought, shit, how long is this going to take till I could go do what I want to do? And then all of a sudden I had this deer in the headlights moment where uh, I realized that I was possessed. No normal human being would want to get away from his son and lock himself in a hot garage and drink a 30 pack it was just irrational. It didn't make sense. And I realized at the time that I was possessed by something that was bigger than me, that I was, I was owned. And uh, it was an amazing uh, moment for me. I really felt it was, I was, it was a deer in a headlight. Now, I still went in the garage and I drank all that beer. And, and then I think two days later, I went to work and I went and I saw my buddy, uh, Mike. And I said, Mike, I may 
have a little problem with alcohol, and I'd like to uh, I'd like to go one of one of them rehabs. Mike wrote down a list of three places, and like a good defiant alcoholic, I picked a fourth place. I then, like an alcoholic, lied to everyone I knew, and I told them I was going to go climb a mountain. So I took off from work, and I, I went and I got on a plane. I left McCarran Airport, and I remember I still felt sick. I was like pickled. My body was, you know, coming back from alcohol poisoning, but I thought, I'm going to rehab. I should get a drink, and I, and I went, and I, I had one bad Bloody Mary at McCarran Airport before I flew to John Wayne Airport. I landed in John Wayne Airport. I, I still remember this lady. She met me at the airport. And it felt good because I, I didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. And then she drove me to this house. And I walked into this house and it was weird. And I didn't know the people. And then the, the head guy kind of came in and he wanted his check. So I wrote him a check. And... uh and I began a, a journey of rehab. It was a 30-day program. And uh, it was the best thing I ever did. Um, on three days into the, into the program, I remember this lady came in and she was addicted to opiates. And she was a wreck. She was crying and she was fancy. And uh, I remember when she was going hysterical, all the staff were trying to deal with her. She broke away for a second. I called her over and I said, hey. Relax. I'm Dave, and I know exactly how this works. I have three days here, and I know exactly what it's like to have one day. So I ended up telling her, listen, make sure you get to bed early, because the assholes are going to wake you up at 6 a.m. you got to make your bed. Uh, come down and have breakfast quick, because we got to get on the van, because they're going to be taking us to a meeting. So I kind of told her the lay of the land, and it was weird. As I started talking to her, and I was helpful and useful to her, I realized um, that I was doing something helpful and useful, and it, it felt good. Um, I, uh, I had a great experience in this 30-day rehab, and uh, when I got out, uh, I was still terrified, and I'm a little dramatic of a person in general, so I, uh, I checked out at 4 a.m., and I drove back to Las Vegas. It might even be a little before 4 a.m. Because I wanted to go to an 8 a.m. Alcoholics Anonymous meeting back in Vegas. So I drove back across the desert. And I was driving across the desert with my wallet and my ATM card and my truck. I felt the back of my neck. I felt, you know, the devil's hand reaching up and grabbing me by the spine. Being like, let's go back downtown. And uh, I was literally fighting with a steering wheel to go to this meeting. And I pulled up at the meeting, and I ran up, and I, I pulled on the door, and I remember the door was locked. And I was a 30-day guy, so I couldn't read a calendar, right? And the meeting was a different day. So I ended up calling the rehab desperate, saying, what do I do? The meeting is not on. And uh, I remember I, it took me a while to get to, like, one of the counselors. They had to come out, a group or something. And he said, Dave. Go home, go see your wife and kid, and go find a different meeting and go to that one. And I remember being so relieved. I was like, oh, all right, I could do that. So I, I went home and I found a different meeting. And I remember I walked into this meeting and I, I remember I vomited. I waited my, time, my turn until it was time to share. 
and then I vomited my story. And I said, I just got out of a 30-day program. I have no idea what's going on. And I guess I was pretty wound up because uh, the group listened. And then right after the meeting, a guy came up named TJ. And he, uh, he looked at me and he pointed his finger at my chest. He was a Navy SEAL. And he said, I'm your sponsor. And uh, in, my, in my head, I was like, who the fuck are you? And don't tell me what to do. But my outside voice was just like, okay. And uh, I did what TJ said. And he told me I had to do 90 meetings in 90 days, which seemed incredibly inconvenient. But again, I, I guess I was beaten up and scared enough to try it. So I did that. And uh, during that 90 days, I, uh, I started getting this. Um, after the 90 days, another guy, Mike, came up to me. He was from New Jersey, and he was really funny. But he told me, uh, he told me I had the coffee commitment, so I ended up making coffee uh, at the Faith Lutheran Church for two years, every Monday and Tuesday. And uh, that really brought me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and during that time, I ended up getting divorced from this wonderful woman. Um, I ended up leaving a job where I was paid a lot of money, uh, at a publicly traded company and uh, I ended up opening up a rehab and it has been just the best journey during the time I went from you know getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to losing money I went from having a wife and a great house to basically being homeless I remember I had all these fancy suits and I went and I donated them and in all these times I thought I was giving away the, the fundamental get money which would I used to be my driver and instead, it became help other people. And I'd always thought getting rich was going to be getting money. But really, getting rich is helping other people, which I now am able to do. Uh, you know, my son just turned 15. And I, I uh, have a great relationship with him. Uh, I'm his hero. His mom gets so mad still because when he writes papers in school about you know, who's the coolest guy in the world? He thinks it's his dad. And I know all his friends. I know all their families. Uh, you know, I coached his his soccer team and his baseball team for six years. I was a Cub Scout master. So I've been able to do things that while I was drinking or using, I never could have done. And um, really getting sober and joining the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a life better than I ever imagined I could have, and I'm eternally grateful for it. Um, if you're thinking about treatment, you're wondering about it. You know, what I'll tell you, uh, I do, a, I do a, a therapeutic class on the Johari window. And in the Johari window, we learn that we know some things about ourselves, and the people we know know stuff about us, and then there's stuff we don't know about ourselves. And then there's stuff people don't know about us in this little window, this little four-panel grid. And in rehab, unplugging for 45 days or unplugging for 60 days, it's not about stopping drinking or stopping using drugs. That's a little tiny part of it. Of course, you don't use drugs and alcohol while you're in rehab. What the big part about it is developing a sense of awareness about yourself and what you've been doing that didn't happen. Now, for me, 
I also became spiritually connected during this time, which has been wonderful. And I didn't realize that while using drugs or alcohol, even though my brain, I thought I was the same and I was, you know, looking at the, looking at the world one way, I didn't realize how much drugs and alcohol dampened out receptivity to the spirit. And that while I was using, I, I couldn't feel him. I couldn't understand. I, I never would understand why I would want to help someone else. And that all gets blocked out when you're, you know, when you're deadened from drugs and alcohol, whether you're going to get it or you're, you're hung over or you're using it. It's this whole vicious cycle that for me personally, I underestimated while I was in his grasp. And that it was only until I was free for some time till I could really see it. So, uh, I don't know. Life is pretty short. You know, why not try it? And, uh, and I will tell you that since I've treated over 3,000 people in Sin City, Las Vegas, I've never had somebody come up to me and say, Dave, I regret getting clean and sober. But I've met Thousands of people who said, I regret not doing it. I've unfortunately met thousands of parents who said, I wish my kid or my spouse could have got it. So uh, there's literally no downside to trying uh, getting clean and sober.